Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 8th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and only Israel. And thank you for listening. We decided to take a short hiatus from our presentations of the Epistles of Paul, having finished Colossians last week. We will resume with 1 Thessalonians next Friday. For now we are going to make a long presentation, because that's the way it worked out, of a Bertrand Compare sermon entitled, Let's Examine the Evidence. This evening we are going to present a critical review of that sermon. The purpose of the sermon was to prove through an assessment of certain of the parables of Yahshua Christ that the New Testament is consistent and contiguous with the Word of God in the Old Testament and therefore that all of the promises of the Old still stand for the children of Israel under the New. We are going to offer several of our own comments, both supporting Compare's work and sometimes criticizing and seeking to correct his work. As we have often said concerning Bertrand Compare and other Christian identity teachers of the past, we owe them a debt of gratitude for the wonderful work and excellent research which they did, blazing a trail for us in our quest for biblical truth. But we also owe it to them and to ourselves to correct any errors they made along the way and to further edify, to build up the work which they left us. We ourselves would be honored if in the future, others did that same thing with our own work. If our text here varies slightly from that which is posted at the Bertrand Compare archive at Christagenia, it is only because we amended parts of Clifton Emmeheiser's original publication from a taped presentation made by Compare himself, and then we realized that two different taped presentations of Compare's sermon exist in our archives, so the slight differences were probably made by Compare himself. It must also be mentioned, and we've done this in the past, that Compare in his sermons used the terms God, Lord, and Jesus, where our version has Yahweh and Yahshua, after the manner in which both Clifton and Gene Snyder before him had transcribed Compare's sermons. We do not have a problem with doing that whatsoever, knowing that Yahshua is simply the more correct Hebrew form of the word and name Jesus. Why is it more correct? Because Yahshua actually means something. It bears a meaning in Hebrew. It means Yahweh saves. And Yahweh, as we can prove from both the writings of Flavius Josephus, 
and other sources, including the original Hebrew, Yahweh is the name of the God of Israel. The name itself being more of an adjective than a proper name, it is nevertheless the name of our God. This is Let's Examine the Evidence by Bertrand Compare, which was prepared with notes that we will present at the end, made by Clifton Emmeheiser. And Compare begins by saying, In far too many churches today, we must remember that Compare is always addressing what he considers or perceives to be a basically Judeo or denominational Christian audience. In far too many churches today, the people are taught that the New Testament has done away with the Old Testament. This must be discarded and repudiated. In fact, many of them will not even so much as have an Old Testament, but carry only a New Testament down separately. This has been a terrible sin on the part of the clergy of these churches to repudiate three-fifths of Yahweh's word. Most of Yahweh's promises to us are contained in the Old Testament. Why should anyone teach that Yahweh's word is worthless and his promises broken? This only undermines the only foundation for the New Testament. Let's examine the evidence and see if we have to cast aside most of Yahweh's word as unworthy of belief. When you hear the evidence... I believe, meaning Compare believes, that you will decide as I have. It is all one book which proclaims one consistent truth from Genesis to Revelation. Neither half of the Bible can be properly understood without the other. And of course we would fully agree with Bertrand Compare in that assertion. And we're going to, before we commence with his sermon, we're going to offer four key New Testament scriptures, which should be sufficient to prove beyond doubt that the Old Testament is not a Jewish book. But rather, with all certainty, it is an important and necessary Christian book. Although there are many others, I believe that these four scriptures stand out amongst the others. Luke chapter 1 verse 68 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. I'm quoting the King James Version here. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. These are important Old Testament connections. His people, redemption, and the house of David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, another Old Testament connection, which had been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies. To understand who those enemies are, we must resort to the Old Testament, and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Old Testament connection, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. The purpose of Christ is to 
uphold that according to this passage in Luke. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Many important Old Testament connections there. And Paul says in Romans chapter 15, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, and he's talking about the things written in the Old Testament, were written for our learning, meaning Paul and the people with him, and the people whom he's addressing, who are formerly pagan Romans were written aforetime for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The scriptures being the Old Testament scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2 Paul addressing pagan or formerly pagan Ephesians. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners quoting the King James version of the Bible but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So we have to see who the promises of Christ redemption a Messiah were made to in the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So the body of Christ must be founded upon not only the apostles, but also the prophets. None of the words of the prophets can fail in relation to the body of Christ. Or your Christianity is not Christianity. It might be some other belief, but it's not the faith of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, and Paul is talking about the people that we know as Jews today, or the Judeans who rejected Christ at Paul's time. Their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil, not taken away or untaken away, in the reading of the Old Testament. So there's a veil over the Old Testament. You cannot see it. When you read it, you cannot understand it. Your mind is blinded. And Paul says, which veil is done away in Christ. It's not the Old Testament that's done away with in Christ. It's the veil that precludes one from understanding the Old Testament, which is done away with in Christ. And Paul continues, but even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart, meaning those people who rejected Christ. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the Lord is that spirit, 
and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Veil, reading the Old Testament, only taken away in Christ, informs us that the Old Testament is indeed a Christian book. It is not a Jewish book at all, because Jews are not able to understand it. Only Christians are able to understand it, according to the analogy of Paul of Tarsus. Returning to Compare, you know the Old Testament is the history of the Adamic race. It's actually a partial history of the Adamic race. It is about the tribes of Israel, Yahweh's chosen people, a small part of the Adamic race. The only time any other people are mentioned is when they come in contact with Israel, which is absolutely true. Consequently, there is no mention of Japan, China, and the many other countries that existed at that time. The Old Testament tells the history of Israel's past and Yahweh's prophecies and promises as to their future. I know you have been taught that the Jews are Israel. No greater falsehood was ever taught to man. In my other lessons, meaning Bertrand Compare's other lessons, I have given you the proof that the real Israel of the Bible is what today we commonly call the Anglo-Saxon nations. This includes Scandinavia, Germany, Austria, Holland, parts of Belgium, France, and Switzerland. It also includes some of the people of Italy, Spain, the people of the British Isles, and the, the descendants of these nations in their former colonies of the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. And when Compare says Anglo-Saxon, he often really means to include all of these people. And it's difficult to do that with one simple name or adjective. And there are others as well which Compare does not include here and who cannot be discounted. The people of Eastern Europe, many of them, are also descended from white Israelites. The people of Ukraine, some of the people of Poland, some of the people of Russia. It's not the lines separating the nations of the children of Israel and the rest of the non-white nations simply aren't that clearly drawn. The Jews control the print and electronic media, <clears throat> except for a small portion of the Internet, which they are also trying to control. They ridicule our Christian identity beliefs and choose the worst of those associated with them in order to slander and discredit us all. For this reason alone, identity Christians must be diligent to repudiate all of the trash and baggage which is brought in by clowns and halfwits and through those clowns and halfwits is associated with Christian identity. 
So the Jews tell the world that Christian identity is an quote-unquote anti-Semitic form of quote-unquote British Israelism. Now, the British Israel people did not have the entire revelation which many of us identity Christians profess today, but they were not crazy. An examination of British Israel adherents readily shows that these were from among the most educated and erudite Britons of their time. They based their beliefs on classical history and archaeology as it began to be studied free of Catholic Church dogmas in the centuries following the Reformation. While they maintained some of the Judaized baggage of the Reformers, along with some Anglophile political hostilities, they were certainly on the path to truth. Now, identity Christians of today can cite classical history, archaeological discoveries, and biblical prophecies over and again, and present a clear and coherent picture of our Christian Israel heritage. But while we certainly are on the side of truth, we shall never convince our enemies, who also happen to be in control of the media and influence governments, even when they are not in directive control of them they are in political and financial control of them. This is the spiritual wickedness in heavenly places which Paul of Tarsus had mentioned. What we must do is to seek to represent only the truth. As Paul of Tarsus said, we must be responsible adults in our Christian walk and not allow ourselves to be carried away with every wind of doctrine. Therefore, we must reject all those who attempt to introduce damnable heresies. The flat earthers, the hollow earthers, the the biru crowd, the fools who believe that there are Nazi military bases on the South Pole, the 2012ers and other date setters. The clowns who think that Noah's Ark was a flying saucer, and so on. These people introducing such heresies are departing from the truths that we can establish, and they discredit us in the eyes of those who might otherwise seek those truths. True Christians must ostracize all of the creators and proponents of these fantastic heresies. I've made a digression here, and perhaps a little rant, but I feel it's a necessary one. I said, many months ago, that when you combine the asinine flat earth theory with the crazy hollow earth theory, what you end up with is a bagel, and that's where they belong. Returning to Compre, he says, I have also given you proof. The Jews are the descendants of the various Canaanite people, such as the 
Hittites, Jebusites, Edomites, with a mixture of an Asiatic people, the Khazars, and we will get to that in a moment. None of these Canaanite peoples are descended from any of the tribes of Israel. In fact, the Jews are identified by our Redeemer, Yahshua, in John 8.44 as being the children of the devil. The Bible, from beginning to end, tells one unvarying story which contains two themes. One, the fall of the Adamic race caused by Satan, which will be cured by the redemption won for us by our Redeemer, Yahshua Christ. Two, Satan will fight continuously against our race, trying to prevent our redemption, using his own race to accomplish this, but he will fail. Now, of course, we do not see Satan as a mystical, all-powerful, evil spirit. Rather, we see Satan a little differently than Compare had, as a plural entity which was created in rebellion to God. And they're here, and they're all around us. But the personal Satan, who sits in heaven and rules over all of these, doesn't exist. That's a Catholic fairy tale. It is not fair to call the original Khazars an Asiatic people, in the derogatory sense, because the inhabitants of Central Asia were certainly nearly all white until relatively recent times, and they included, especially in the first few centuries of the Christian era, they included the tribes of the Goths, the Alans, the Saxons, and other Germanic Israelite people the Massagete is who I mean by the Goths, and the Massagete are also the ancestors of the Huns by all historical accounts, such as Procopius. And there were other related Aryan tribes in Central Asia as well, who at one time occupied all the land of Asia, as far east as Mongolia and Tibet, perhaps even further. Of late, the so-called Khazar Hypothesis, as it is called, is often disputed in mainstream academia and in white nationalist and even Christian identity circles. It is doubtless that the so-called Jews of today are not properly Ashkenaz which was the name that medieval rabbis had very inaccurately applied to Germany. And that's why they really consider themselves Ashkenazi Jews. They try to assert that they are German Jews when they're not German at all. And neither are they truly Khazars. It is certainly evident, even in non-Jewish historical sources, that Aryan people dwelt in a land called Khazaria. The Byzantine emperor, Leo IV, was a son of a Khazar princess who was at first promised in marriage to Pepin the Short, the king of the Franks. With the risk of oversimplifying the history, we will say 
that apparently many Edomite and Babylonian Jews found refuge in Khazaria in the early Middle Ages. After this time, Khazaria seems to have become overrun with the people now known as Turks, whom the Jews employed for military purposes against the Byzantine Empire. Later, Khazaria was invaded and overrun by the Mongols, and it is evident that the Jews intermingled with all of these before migrating into Central Europe. It seems evident that during all of this time, the original Khazar pagan population slowly turned to various sorts of Christian, Jewish, and Muslim beliefs. Jews mixed with local populations wherever they traveled, and therefore the Khazar hypothesis is a gross oversimplification of the fact that the so-called Ashkenazi Jews are not Israelites. However, the Jews among the Khazars, while they had some Israelite blood, were never truly Israelites in the first place. But it's not fair to call Khazars an Asiatic people, not the original Khazars in the derogatory sense. Kampere continues discussing the satanic war against the Adamic race. It starts in Genesis, and is stated clearly in Genesis 3.15, where, Satan, where Yahweh tells Satan, I will put enmity between thee and a woman, between thy seed and her seed. The same Hebrew word, Zerah, meaning seed or descendant, is used in both places. So the Bible says that Satan is to have just as literal children as Eve. In John 8.44, Yahshua identified these children of Satan as the Jews. Yahshua also identified them in Luke chapter 11 and elsewhere. Speaking to the Genesis serpent, it is evident from Revelation chapter 12 that Yahweh said these things to Satan or to a Satan, since Yahweh both had and has many adversaries, where Satan is identified with that serpent of old, which can only be the Genesis chapter 3 serpent. In Revelation 12, it is evident that this Satan had a host of angels. They could all collectively be considered Satan. They are not mentioned in Genesis. We believe they are mentioned in Genesis, but they have become a much larger population after the events of Revelation 12 and by the time of the Genesis chapter 3 event, which was actually long after their fall. So they are referred to as a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and all of its branches would be included in the idea of the serpent seed, since they were all related and opposed to God. God didn't create them. They were not good. There are many races of people here on earth who cannot be identified in the creation of God. And at the end, when the net is cast into the sea, 
and brings up every kind of fish. None of those other races are good. So God could not have created them. Only the children of Israel, only his Adamic race are good. All of these other races are related and opposed to God. We believe that Genesis 3 is a parable representing an obscure ancient truth. And Comparet continues by speaking of similar parables in the New Testament. Yahshua spoke most of his teachings in the form of parables. We will see that he taught this same consistent truth of the conflict between the Adamic Israelite children of Yahweh and the children of Satan. He, because he recognized the Jews as the children of Satan, Yahshua took very great care not to let the Jews learn his gospel. Yahshua concealed the gospel in parables whenever he spoke in the presence of the Jews. And we agree with Compare here. So long as by Jews we interpret him to be referring to the Judeans, who could be either Edomite Judeans or Israelite Judeans, and we will elaborate a little later. Furthermore, because in earliest times the seed of the serpent would have to include the entire tree which the serpent represented, we would not confine the concept of the children of Satan or the seed of the serpent to the Jews alone. It is practically childish to do so. Even the history, even history and biblical history shows that many of the Kenites, the Rephaim, the Canaanites, and Edomites existed outside of Judea and were never considered to be Jews. So the Jews were the seed of Satan, but they were not the only descendants of such seed. It is oversimplistic and ignorant of biblical history to think so. Compare continues to describe why the gospel message was concealed to the Judeans. This is explained in Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4. Matthew tells us, And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speaketh thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever has, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever has not, from him shall be taken away even what he has. Therefore speak I unto them in parables. Because seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. For this people's hearts is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and their sins should be forgiven them. Here Compare perpetuates a misunderstanding, and makes an 
oversimplification which has caused much confusion when bringing new people who are already familiar with scripture to the truth of Christian identity. Examining these words as they are in Isaiah, they were not spoken to Edomites. They were not spoken exclusively to the children of the devil, but rather they were spoken to the people of Jerusalem in general which in the time of the prophet had included at least as many Israelites as others, and probably many more. In Jeremiah, the people of Jerusalem are represented by a basket of good figs and a basket of bad figs. Ostensibly, the bad figs were the Canaanite and Canaanite infiltrators into Judah and Jerusalem. Those infiltrators are also described in Ezekiel chapter 16 and in Jeremiah chapter 2. In Ezekiel chapter 16, Yahweh admonishes the people of Jerusalem for basically being Hittites and Canaanites. The Judahites, I'm sorry, ostensibly in Jeremiah, the bad figs were the Canaanite and Kenite infiltrators into Judah and Jerusalem. The Judahites who stayed behind or went to Egypt or who were of certain families of the disobedient princes of Judah were promised punishment in Jeremiah chapter 24 by being handed over to the bad figs. They themselves were not bad figs. There were good figs, there were the people that were going to be punished, and there were bad figs. And the people that were going to be punished were going to be punished by being handed over to the bad figs. That was fulfilled by 70 AD, since many of the people of Judah, following the Edomite Sadducees, in the rejection of Christ, being blind to his word and following the bad figs instead, were indeed punished in that manner. At the time of Christ, the bad figs were represented primarily by the Canaanite and Edomite people who had come to dominate and rule in Judea. That is the fulfillment of that prophecy of Isaiah. Yahweh God gives his people up to his enemies for their chastisement when they are not obedient to him. That is how these certain people were handed over to the bad figs, fulfilling the prophecy in Jeremiah as well. Being purposely obedient I'm sorry, being purposely disobedient, they were blinded to the meaning of the gospel of Christ. These are the people Paul prayed for later on when he wrote Romans chapter 9, that they would repent and follow the gospel instead of following the Edomites. As for the Edomites themselves, they could never repent and be healed. They had no sin to be forgiven because 
Sin is violation of the law, and where there is no law, sin is not accounted. The Edomites themselves didn't have the law. The Edomites could never be healed, even if they did claim to repent, because they simply were broken cisterns, which can never be made whole again, which could never bear water. Christ told the Edomites, you do not believe me, not because your hearts are heavy and you're blind, but because you are not my sheep. And Compare himself quotes that several times in his paper. Continuing with Compare, in four parables, Joshua covers a period of 4,000 years and shows Yahweh's unchanging purpose. It is the same in both Old and New Testaments. Let's examine the evidence, the title of this sermon, of these four parables spoken by Yahshua. Let's see whether Yahweh has ever changed his mind or whether his word is always good, meaning his word in the Old Testament, because that's the purpose of this sermon, to show that the two Testaments are contiguous and interdependent. The vineyard and the husbandman, the first of Compare's four parables. This parable is found in both Matthew chapter 21 and Luke chapter 20. It covers about the last 1,000 years of the Old Testament and up to the crucifixion of Yahshua. Here is how Yahshua told it. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him and let us seize his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. And Compare asks, What does this parable mean? Nothing can correctly interpret the Bible, except the Bible itself. Everyone who tries to explain it by his own interpretation, or by church doctrines, will always fail. Let's see what the Bible says about this parable of the vineyard and the husbandman. The householder planted a vineyard, and he put in it a wine press and a tower. So what is this vineyard? Isaiah chapter 5 tells us, My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, 
and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, in, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now I will tell you what I will do unto my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or digged, for there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of Yahweh is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. Note that the vineyard originally was Israel and Judah. For their sins they are deported, and the land is desolated. There grows up in their place briars and thorns, not his pleasant plant. We know as a matter of recorded history, that following the captivities, the land was overrun with alien pagan people, the Canaanites and the Edomites, who took over the land under King Herod. Hence, Joshua says that it was let out to husbandmen. Both Yahweh's children and his servants were absent, and others were in possession. Capre did very well to connect the vineyard of the parable of Christ to the vineyard of Isaiah chapter 5, for they are certainly telling one and the same story. But the wild grapes, who are the disobedient amongst Judah and Jerusalem, they are the people to whom Yahweh was speaking when he said, Therefore I speak unto them in parables, because seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. For this people's hearts is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and their sins should be forgiven them. When the children of Israel are disobedient, Yahweh sends upon them a spirit of deception, because they have no love for the truth. Concerning the briars and thorns, however, who are indeed the Canaanites and the other wicked tribes, Compare does well again to relate them to the words of Jeremiah chapter 2, where he continues, and he says, This is in confirmation of Jeremiah 2.21, where Yahweh said, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a true seed, how then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? What is growing there is no longer the vine which Yahweh planted, it is an alien growth. In the vineyard was a winepress, the symbol of sacrifice, in place of punishment, that is, the temple. The hedge, or wall, and the tower were the symbols of government and defense, that is, the throne of David. The briars and thorns, the alien husbandmen, were not Yahweh's servants, for only Israel can qualify as that. 
In Isaiah chapter 41, Yahweh says, But thou, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof. I said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Again, Yahshua Christ said in Matthew chapter 15, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But in John 10.26 and 27, Yahshua said to the Jews, You believe me not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So the Jews were definitely not any part of Israel. They were only tenants on the land, true briars and thorns, and alien growth. And, of course, this is true of the leaders of the Jews, of the leaders of the Judeans. Many of the people of the Judeans were merely wild grapes, who had grown up under the leadership of these briars and thorns. And they were to be punished by God for abandoning his word. As he said, all the way back in Jeremiah chapter 24, they were going to be handed over to the bad figs. The Jews recognized the son, Yahshua Christ, as the heir. And they sought not only to kill him, And these are the bad figs, the evil figs themselves, who are recognizing Christ as the heir. And they sought not only to kill him, but also to seize for themselves the inheritance. They had already seized the land of Judah, and they also wanted to seize the lands held by the modern nations of Israel. And we're going to have a contention with this. Who were then moving toward their new homes in Europe. And actually, we would say a good number of them were already there in Europe. And Compre says, we know that, as the parable tells. They did murder the son for this most horrible crime in all history. Don't you think they deserve some punishment? The parable goes on. And in Luke chapter 20, Yahshua said, What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. There was no repentance there, just the desire to be evil without receiving the penalty for it. In Matthew chapter 21, Yahshua continues, Did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is Yahweh's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of Yahweh shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing the forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whom it shall fall, it will grind him to power, powder. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. Note that the kingdom of Yahweh, which Yahweh had originally established in Palestine, was to be taken away from the Jews and given to a nation, not a church. 
Did you say that you didn't know that the kingdom of Yahweh was established centuries ago in Palestine? Certainly it was. It is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Then Solomon sat on a throne of Yahweh as king, instead of David his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. Solomon never sat on Yahweh's throne in heaven. It was the throne of Yahweh in Jerusalem. So it was Yahweh's kingdom on earth. The Jews had seized this kingdom of Yahweh by treacherous intrigues and by force. An accurate account of this is recorded in Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus, books 14 through 18. These books tell how the Edomite Jew Herod became king of Judea. The kingdom of Yahweh was also wherever his people, true Israel, were. The Jews also planned to seize this part of the son's inheritance. This is confirmed in Ezekiel chapter 35. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, and Compris quoting Ezekiel chapter 35, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir, the home of the Edomites, and prophesy against it, and say unto it, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch mine hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate, because thou hast said, These two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas Yahweh was there. Thus saith Yahweh, meaning Yahweh was there in these two nations and these two countries. Yahweh was there. That's integral to our interpretation of the passage. Thus saith Yahweh, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make thee desolate. Here Compare runs a little off course. He is postulating that one country and nation in Ezekiel chapter 35 is Palestine, and the other country and nation in Ezekiel chapter 35 is in Europe. But Europe was never one nation, and the children of Israel in Europe were always many nations, as even Paul of Tarsus explains that the nations, plural, of his own time, who were sacrificing to idols in Europe, were Israel according to the flesh. Rather, in Ezekiel chapter 35, Yahweh refers to Israel and Judah as the two countries and the two nations. Yahweh was there, which the children of Edom were coveting. And indeed, the Edomites, in rather large numbers, which had moved into both Israel and Judah after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. The lists of Edomite cities forcibly converted to Judaism by John Hyrcanus as they are described in Book 13 of Josephus' Antiquities shows Ezekiel chapter 35 to have been fulfilled in that manner. Back to Compare, where he continues to wander off course. Just as the Jews 
had used Roman legions to seize Palestine, they knew they could not seize the other lands of Israel except by using the armies of some other nation. Today we know this to be Russia. Yahshua knew their plans and warned them it would be a disaster. Whosoever shall fall upon his stone shall be broken, and on whom it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. This stone was the stone kingdom mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and that the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now Compare was correct that Daniel's fifth kingdom as he is describing there, was an Israelite kingdom, and must have referred to the Germanic tribes, which had indeed destroyed the Roman Empire. But that has no relation to the passage concerning these two countries and these two nations in Ezekiel chapter 35. Furthermore, the Romans and many of the Greek tribes were also descendants of Israel. There is something else going on here, which is not necessarily connected to the events in Palestine. There was to be a series of world empires that were destined to rule wheresoever the children of men dwell, as Daniel explained, and that would include the children of Israel. Those empires came out of Adamic nations, Israel and otherwise. But it is evident from a similar prophecy in Revelation chapter 13, that it is the dragon, characterized as the Kenite, Canaanite, and Edomite Jew, the international bankers and the merchants, which gives its power to the beast, which are the world empires. But that is a prophecy which is distinct from what is going on in the Palestine of Ezekiel chapters 34 and 35. Compare wandered way off course getting into this topic. Mentioning Russia, Compare also entirely misses the fact that the same Edomite Jew already controlled England, America, and most of Europe through the Anglo-American alliance, and did not need Russia for that purpose. America was controlled by the Jew in 1913, before the Jews took over Russia in the Bolshevik Revolution. But England was controlled much earlier than that. However, Germany was not in their full economic control until 1918 and again in 1945. Compare understood the financial power of the international bankers and he understood the Jewish control of America and England. But he did not apply his understanding evenly throughout his interpretations of scripture. It was his political motivation which led him to include Russia in his interpretation to squeeze this fear porn about Russia 
into this sermon when he presented it in the 1960s. That's why he mentioned Russia, and it obscured his ability to present a clear picture in, in, in my estimation. We can never let our emotions over current events affect our interpretations of scripture because we'll easily be deceived and led astray by our emotions. Capra continues his discussion of the parable of the vineyard and the husbandman, and he says, Yahshua, by this parable, exposed the Jews as interlopers, briars and thorns in Yahweh's vineyard. These people had taken by deceit what was not theirs. They also planned to similarly take the other lands which Israel now had, however they would be destroyed in doing so. The Jews knew this, for Luke chapter 20 says, And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken his parable against them. And they watched him, and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him into the power and authority of the government. And if the people perceived these things, and perceived what Yahshua was saying against those high priests, then some of those people, at least, must have had open eyes and ears. And here Capri was right, and he did well to connect the vineyard of the parable to the vineyard of Isaiah, for they certainly are one and the same. But his references to Daniel chapter 2 and Russia are both out of context and fall somewhat short of a full scriptural and historical understanding. He goes on to the second of his four parables which connect the Old and New Testaments, the parable of the unfaithful steward. And he says this parable traces the Jews from the crucifixion through the Christian era and we might contend with that just a little. It is found in Luke chapter 16 and begins. And he also said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away the stewardship from me. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. And he said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measure of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measure of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore, which is eighty. 
We reject the notion that the parable of the unfaithful steward, quote-unquote, traces the Jews from the crucifixion through the Christian era. In fact, Paul of Tarsus asserted that he had been given the stewardship over the nations to reconcile them with Christ. So the Jews could not be the stewards after Christ had exposed them as children of the devil. Rather, the parable of the unfaithful steward illustrates the behavior of the Jew whenever he is permitted to come into any position of authority within a Christian nation. But because that happens does not make it right. Rather, it happens because sinful Israelites are being chastised. So the tail becomes the head. So the parable is a warning against the Jew. That's what it is. Compare continues. This unfaithful steward was the Jew. He had entered the kingdom, claimed citizenship in it, seized the throne and the priesthood. So he had assumed all the responsibilities of stewardship. It records that he had wasted his master's goods. What were these goods? And Compare goes way overboard in this analogy, but we'll roll with it. First, there was the throne of David. Jewish influence upon the kings had caused the loss of this throne when King Zedekiah was overthrown, about 589 B.C. And in this, Compare was correct. If we substitute Kenite and Canaanite for Jewish, although the people known as Jews are Kenites and Canaanites, with which the Edomites were also mixed. And he says, the throne of David didn't cease to exist. One branch of the royal tribe was already on the principal throne in Ireland. The prophet Jeremiah took Teotaphi, a daughter of King Zedekiah, to Ireland where she married this king, there continuing the throne of David. This throne was lost to the land of Palestine, occupied by the Jews. Next to their master's goods was the law. The Jews had rejected this for the Babylonian Talmud, which in Yahshua's day was called the tradition of the elders. While the Talmud pretends to give service to the law, it doesn't, but teaches evasion of the law. Therefore, Yahshua repeatedly rebuked the Jews for having substituted the Talmud, or tradition of the elders, for the law. And and this is true, as Christ had told them, that they made the law of God of no effect with their traditions in Matthew chapter 15. But the Edomites were never supposed to have the law in the first place. Compare oversimplifies the nature of the Judeans. They weren't all bad, they weren't all Edomites, and he falls into a conflict here with his own statements where he says that the Jews had rejected the law of God for the Babylonian Talmud, when in fact the Edomites never had the law of God in the first place. The Israelite Judeans certainly did discard the law of God because they accepted the traditions of these Edomite Sadducees and and these apostates 
and other people who had joined the Edomites for 70 years almost from the time of Herod until the time of the fall of Jerusalem it can be documented in Josephus that nearly all of the high priests were from two particular families and they were all Sadducees it is evident it is not explicit but it is evident in the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 5, if my memory tells me correctly, that those Sadducees were almost certainly Edomites and not Israelites. Compre's oversimplification sets some of his statements in conflict with himself. There are three parties here. There are believing Judeans who are good figs, there are disbelieving Judeans, and there are bad figs who are Edomites and other Canaanites. And these disbelieving Judeans are going to be, they're the ones that forsook the law, and they're going to be turned over to the bad figs as a punishment for it. That turning over happened by 70 AD and after 70 AD and the later rebellions of the Judeans against the Romans these disbelieving Judeans whom Paul had Paul had prayed for had become mingled and united with these Edomite Jews and that's when they were turned over to the bad figs for their punishment to become a curse and a reproach and a taunt and a proverb in every nation where they were led captive as a result and that's the history of the Jews there's no turning back for them genetically because after several generations of unification with the Edomites in their identity and in the resulting captivity which the Romans put them under they would be mixed with the Edomite blood Jews were not permitted to marry Christians and Christians were not permitted to marry Jews so Compare's oversimplification and trying to label those three parties and narrow them down to two causes him trouble and it causes conflict when we introduce this message to people examining Christian identity who are already familiar with the Bible and can see those conflicts that certain things don't add up they always have questions about them and many identity Christians cannot answer those questions we have to be able to answer those questions. Compare continues. In John 539, 45-46, Yahshua told the Jews, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and it is they which testified me. There is one which accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For you, had you believed in Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. In Matthew 15, Yahshua continues, Why do you also transgress the commandment of Yahweh by your tradition? Thus you have made the commandment of Yahweh, the commandment of Yahweh of no effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draws 
nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me but in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men and of course Christ was not chastising Edomites exclusively in this manner his words are meant for Israelites disobedient people of Judah just as Isaiah's words were meant for disobedient people of Judah the Edomites he told differently you believe me not because you are not my sheep Christ quoted Isaiah who was prophesying in reference to Israelites and not in reference to Edomites or Canaanites rather the Israelites were at fault for adopting the alien traditions contrary to the laws of Yahweh their God the traditions they adopted in place of the law were the commandments of men which caused them to transgress the law Compare continues in Luke 16 Yahshua said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them if they hear not Moses and the prophets neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead over 19 centuries of history bear witness that they have not been persuaded although one did rise from the dead they had wasted their master's goods the law and we would say that the Edomite did as he should be expected to do with his master's goods since they were never really his to have in the first place and that is the point of the parable Furthermore, those words of Christ should be enough to convince Christians that the Jews cannot and should not ever be converted to Christianity. Sadly, they weren't. Compare continues. The next goods they wasted was the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament. They rejected the prophets and had murdered them. In Matthew chapter 23:31, Yahshua told them, Ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. However, in, and we must interject that in Luke chapter 11, Yahshua blames the interlopers, the descendants of Cain, for the blood of the prophets. Fourth of the goods wasted was the temple, the center of religion. This was lost to the Edomite Jews, the synagogue of Satan, as they are called in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The historian Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, book 13, chapter 9, and books 14 through 18, tells how the Edomites, under Antipater and Herod, took over the temple and murdered the last high priest of the true line of Aaron. Then they set up a succession of scoundrels as high priests thereafter. Then these bogus high priests conducted a thing of utter evil in the false guise of the rites of the temple. The last of the wasted goods was the land itself. They had already lost to the Romans and were soon to lose possession of the land. Yahweh couldn't trust them with his house as tenant farmer, husbandmen, or as stewards. Yahshua warned the Jews that the stewardship was being taken away from them. And Compare seems to despise the Romans. But the Romans were indeed the people of Messiah the Prince, as Daniel chapter 9 explains it, who were designated by Yahweh to destroy Jerusalem as his kinsmen revengers.
So Paul wrote to them in his epistle that God would bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And Compare continues. What was the response to this? Repentance? Never. It was. I cannot dig. No, they have never been producers, only parasites on the work of others. They say that they will ingratiate themselves with Yahweh's debtors by telling them to diminish their debt to Yahweh. What are the debts we owe to Yahweh? Certainly, morality is one. Who controls the theater and the movies? Who controls, I'm sorry, who pours out the flood of filthy, salacious plays and movies? These are movies which now find adultery too tame and are now featuring incest and homosexuality. Who owns the publishing houses which print most of the pornographic books and magazines we find on our newsstands? The answer is the Jews. Who else? Can you doubt that the purpose of this is to break down all traces of morality? And of course, Compre is right about the Jews. But going a little too far with the analogy... He begins to confuse the debtors with the dishonest steward himself, who represents the Jews. But the parable, if you read it carefully, insinuates that even the debtors were Jews. We cannot imagine that the satanic Jew, being a bastard, actually owes anything to God, or would ever even want to repay him honestly. Capre continues, <coughs> and he says, Honesty is another debt we owe to Yahweh. Who is it that every nation in the world, by bitter experience, has learned to distrust? Be frank now. Haven't you also been cheated by them until you learn to be on your guard against fraud? Do you not say, do you say that they are no longer alone in this quality? True. But who introduced such practices into business? You don't have to be very old to remember when fraud was cause of surprise as well as indignation. Now most businessmen have to cut corners if they are ever going to stay in business against Jewish competition. And neither is the Jew ever expected to be honest. Yahweh says in Jeremiah chapter 8, For behold, I will send serpents cockatrices among you which will not be charmed and they shall bite you saith the Lord seeing a Jew one should expect to be bitten loyalty is another dad you know that from Karl Marx, the grandson of rabbis on both sides of the family down through Stalin who was half Jewish married to a Jewess, and both his sons and daughters married Jews. Communism has been a Jewish enterprise. Though they claim to be only 3% of our population, the Jews furnish over 90% of all the red spies and traitors we have been able to catch. You know how they can make a traitor out of every gullible Gentile. And Compre again is basically spreading 1960s fear porn.
But capitalism has also always been a Jewish enterprise, and the West was just as much enslaved to the Jews as the Russians. Based on usury, capitalism is a curse on our race. The so-called red spies and traitors were only pawns in a game, since the Jewish bankers controlled both sides of the Cold War all along, and Compare should not have fell for the dichotomy offered by the Jews. Religion, he says, is another debt we owe to Yahweh. Surely I need not remind you that over the last 19 centuries, the only consistent and permanent enemies of Yahshua and Christianity have been the Jews. The so-called higher critics who sought to discredit the Bible are Jews. They have constantly tried to get us to abandon our loyalty to our God, Yahweh. And this is true, but the Jews apparently seem to be the only enemies, because until recently, only they had been permitted to roam free in Christian society as equal citizens and have free entry into all of our institutions. The Arab, the Negro, the Asian, and all other aliens would be enemies just as much as the Jew if they had been granted the same estate. And they were not, not until recently. And certainly not in Capra's time. Capra continues, Yahshua was certainly right in his parable. The unfaithful steward has taught his master's debtors to diminish their debts. Unfortunately, we have gone along with the other part of the parable and have received the unfaithful steward into our houses. For doing this, we have paid and will pay a fearful price. We can't say that we haven't been warned. So Compré understood in the end that this parable is a warning. In 2 John, Chapter 1. We are told that many deceivers are come into the world who confess not that Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Yahshua has not Yahweh. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Today, many are deliberately helping the Jews in their evil work, despite the warning that even to wish them well makes you a partaker of their evil deeds. If you stand in the street and hail Judas, 
Yoo-hoo, Judas, where are you going? Are you going to get your thirty pieces of silver? Judas, I wish you success. Can't you see that you are now practicing participating in his guilt. Yahshua prophesied the entire period of the Christian era and the Jews' part in it. This parable tells what is only too true today. Now, overall, Capra did well with this parable. He may have done better if he had been able to understand the Greek of Luke, chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, as we understand and interpret it to say, and the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely, because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. In the Greek, we can see that the debtors were Jews also. And I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And of course, only God receives his children into eternal dwellings. So they should choose to follow him instead of the sins of the world. The real point of the parable is to show that the Jew, if he is put into a position of authority in the kingdom of God, will immediately begin to divide up its holdings and give them out to his friends. This is exactly what the Jew has done throughout the Christian nations in modern times. And here is Compare's third parable, the parable of the fig tree. And he says, some of you are thinking, but my minister told me the Jews were going to be converted someday, and then they would convert the Christians. Convert us to what? No, Yahshua told us just the opposite. The Jews will never be converted. The parable of the fig tree, prophetic of the Jews, was so very important that Yahshua both told it in words and then emphasized it by acting it out. The time covered by it begins with Yahshua's three years of ministry and extends forever. And here we would say that Compre is not entirely clear. It only extends forever because the Jew will bear no fruit forever. But when there are when there are no more Jews, the parable will become meaningless because there aren't any more Jews. There's no more fig tree. Compre continues in Luke chapter thirteen. Yahshua told the parable of the fig tree. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then he said to the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Why should it burden the ground? And he answering said, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it, and fertilize it, and it bears fruit. Well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Practically all Bible students agree the fig tree is the symbol of the Jews, not Israel. And that's not true because most Bible students would claim that the Jews are Israel. The three years Joshua came seeking fruit on the fig tree were the three years of his ministry as recorded in the Gospel of John.
Yahshua made no converts from among the Jews, only from the few true Israelites of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah among them. And of course, Yahshua wouldn't convert the Edomites. And that is who Capere considers to be Jews here. Yahshua said in Matthew chapter 15, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In John chapter 10, Yahshua told the Jews, You believe me not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Compare repeated a paragraph that he used here earlier, but he did not apply his understanding evenly throughout his interpretations of scripture. It's that simple. And that's something that we should strive to do, or to do better. He continues by saying, Matthew chapters 21 through the beginning of chapter 26 is a continuous story, story ending with the crucifixion. Matthew 21 verses 18 and 19 record, And when he saw a fig tree in a way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only. And he said to it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Yahshua acted out this parable in order to make most impressive an eternal truth. The Jews would not produce any fruit forever. Who is it that brings forth the fruits of the kingdom of Yahweh? Israel, of course. Isaiah chapter 27, 6 says, He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Hosea 14.8 says, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. From the Jews there would be no fruit forever. And these scriptures in relation to this parable are an excellent observation on Capere's part. The world is full of Israelite fruit, and that is the world which Yahshua had come to save. But it means the world of the Adamic race, and not the entire planet. As Luke had said, Caesar taxed the whole world. He never taxed China and Negroland. The prophecy in Isaiah had come to pass by the time of Christ. Capre says, in speaking of the signs of his second coming, Yahshua made one more reference to the fig tree, the Jewish nation of today in Palestine. In Matthew 23, Yahshua said, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When his branch is tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Yahshua was perfectly consistent. Note, he speaks of the fig tree putting forth leaves, not fruit. More than this, Yahshua took 
changed to see that the Jews weren't converted. He taught among them only in parables they could not understand, which he explained privately to his disciples. Both Matthew 13 and Mark 4 record that the disciples asked Yahshua why he only spoke in parables among the Jews. He replied, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. So he repeats the error that that could possibly apply to the Edomites when it really applies to that third party of disbelieving Judeans who, according to Jeremiah, were destined for punishment. Compre was right about the fig tree and the leaves and the lack of fruit. But the blindness was to ensure that Jeremiah chapter 24 was fulfilled in the people whom Yahweh promised to make an example of, where it says, first of the good figs in a relation to Christ, for I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their own heart. There it speaks of the believing Judeans, those who accepted Christ, and they became apostles and, and Christians. And then it speaks of other Judahites who were to be punished, to be turned over to the evil figs, where it says in Jeremiah 24, 8. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith Yahweh. So, now he's not saying that these people are the evil figs. He's saying that he's going to give these people to the evil figs, where it says, So will I give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, those people that had mixed with the Edomites and were later conquered by the Maccabees, that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt, the Jews of Alexandria and other places. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave to them and to their fathers. It's speaking about those Judeans who disbelieved him who would be turned over to the bad figs. The bad figs being the Edomites and Canaanites and other peoples forcibly converted to Judaism in the second century BC. Yahshua did not want certain of the people of Judea to be converted so that they would be punished in the hands of the evil figs. But he never had a care to convert the evil figs themselves. And they would not believe him whether he spoke in parables or in plain language. So where Compare continues, he confounds two groups. The two groups in Judea at the time of Christ were actually three groups according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Good figs to be established, evil figs which cannot be eaten, 
and other Judahites who were disobedient and who were going to be turned over to the evil figs. Yet today, those last two groups are no longer two, but one, since all the Israelites who disobeyed Christ are now commingled with the Edomite bad figs who rejected Christ. They've been given over. Oversimplifying this, Compre continues, why didn't Yahshua want the Jews converted? Well, he's not counting those different groups of Judeans. He's confounding them together. Why didn't Yahshua want the Jews converted? John 8.44 explains thus, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. This can only be speaking of Cain and about not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He that is of Yahweh heareth Yahweh's words. Therefore you hear them not, because you are not of Yahweh. Well, it discounts the people, and that's true of the Edomites, but it discounts those people that Yahweh purposely blinded and cause them not to hear, as he says in Isaiah, so that he could punish them for their disobedience. And of course in John 8, Yahshua could only have been speaking of the Edomites and Canaanites, who were in large degree descended from the Rephaim and the Kenites. These were the evil figs of Jeremiah. But Yahweh blinded the eyes of certain disobedient Israelite Judeans for their punishment, turning them over to the evil figs. Compare continues, Yahshua calls us, meaning white Christian Israelites, Yahshua calls us his brothers. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, for both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare my name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. How could Yahshua ever call a Jew his brother? He has clearly stated several times that the Jews, meaning those Edomite Canaanite Jews, that the Jews are the children of the devil. If he called them his brethren, he would have to acknowledge that Satan was his father. No son of Satan could ever be a brother to Yahshua. Now we know why the fig tree will bear no fruit forever. And of course, concerning that, Compare is true. Compre established his main point once more, and now he proceeds with his fourth parable, proving that the Old and New Testament are inseparable, the parable of the servants and the pounds. The fourth and last parable is found in both Matthew 25:14 through 30 and Luke 19:12 through 17. Its time covers the entire Christian era, beginning with the resurrection of Yahshua. It deals with true Israel, not the Jews. This parable begins, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said, Occupy, a word which actually means transact business. Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Surely, I don't, meaning Compare, 
Surely I don't need to labor to prove to you that the nobleman who went away to receive a kingdom and to return is Yahshua Christ. His ten servants are the ten tribes of Israel. At the time that Yahshua went away, the ten tribes of Israel were on the march in their migration toward their eventual homelands in Europe. And that's actually a gross oversimplification as well, because many of them were already there for a long time, as Paul proves over and again, especially in his epistles to the Romans and the first epistle to the Corinthians. He says, a representative group from the other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were still in Palestine mixed among the Jews. And that is an accurate statement, even though they were all considered Jews, those who failed to convert to Christianity were all considered Jews throughout history. And properly so, because those disobedient Judeans were to be turned over to those bad figs, those evil figs. And that's what happened. Actually, a great number from all 12 tribes were in Europe, but the representative group of Judah and Benjamin always referred to them only as 10 tribes. However, some of the more technically minded called them nine and a half, splitting Levi. If one were truly careful and observant of scripture, he would realize that Simeon would have to be split in that same manner as well, considering the prophecy of Jacob at Genesis 49 verses 5 through 7, that both Simeon and Levi would be spread through their brethren, through Judah. Compare continues, Only Israel has ever been called Yahweh's servant. This is found in many places, such as Isaiah chapter 41. This was written after Israel had disappeared into the Assyrian captivity, from which they never returned to Palestine. But now, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have not cast thee away. And of course, Judah was, much of Judah, was included in the Assyrian deportations. The citizens who rejected him are the Jews. They are not his servants, nor any part of Israel. They lived in the land for some centuries, in the capital city of Jerusalem, and had become citizens. They did send a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. John chapter 19 tells us, Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. When Pilate put the sign on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Judeans, it tells us, Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not king of the Judeans, but that he said, I am king of the Judeans. When he went away, Matthew chapter 25 says that he delivered unto them his goods, meaning in the parable 
unto his servants. Sometimes in their money value, it is mentioned as talents and sometimes as pounds. Remember the parable of the unfaithful steward in which Joshua told the Jews that they were no longer to have control over his goods. He also told them that the kingdom of Yahweh would be taken from them and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. What were his goods? The same as we said before, the throne of David. By the time Yahshua spoke this parable, the throne of David had been in the British Isles for over 600 years. The law. King Alfred the Great wrote down the accepted customs of England into a code of laws. Here he adopted the Ten Commandments and most of the statutes and judgments out of the Bible. It was the first and only time in history since the time of Yahshua that a nation adopted the laws of Yahweh as its own laws. This was the origin of the English common law, and this in turn is the basis for most American law, and most popular sources agree that Alfred's laws, called the Doom Book, were the basis for common law, and were at least partially, and this is what the sources say, they're not what I'm saying, at least partially based upon the Old Testament law. So Compare is once again accurate. The Bible, only the Christian nations have it all. Most of the Christian nations are the Anglo-Saxon nations of Israel. And as we noted, presenting others of Compare's sermons, and even here, he counted the Germanic nations as Anglo-Saxon as well, even if the label is not entirely accurate. The Angles were but one tribe of the Saxon Germanic nations. And next he says, The church, successor to the temple, only the Christian nations ever had this, and we would disagree. The temple has no successor, and the true church is only the assembly of the people of Israel in any given place, in whole or in part. The land, he says, there were two lands given by Yahweh to Israel. First, the little land of Palestine, which could contain them when they were still very few. Second, their future homelands, for the days when they became too numerous to live in Palestine. In the year 1042 B.C., when David was king and the people of Israel were already living in Palestine, Yahweh said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them as before time. And this is true, but it still does not make Europe one of the two lands of Ezekiel chapter 35. Compare continues. This couldn't refer to Palestine, for it spoke of the future, while they were still living in Palestine. It also said that in this future land, they would move no more, whereas they did have to move out of Palestine. Israel had the new lands in Europe and their colonies. After the times of the nations ended, they were to regain the old land in Palestine. 
So Yahweh's servants, Israel, were left in charge of Yahweh's goods, and he told them to occupy until I come. This is confirmed by Daniel 2.44, which says, The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. However, we haven't been true to our trust. When our master returns, we will have to make an accounting, both individually and nationally. Compare takes that word, occupy, literally, imagining that that's what the Greek says. He accepts the King James translation. It really should have said, be occupied until I come. In other words, to be occupied with the money that the master had given each of his servants. The Greek says, transact your business until I come. The word occupy is a bad translation in the modern sense of the word, without a doubt. Capri continues... We have allowed the very enemies he named to enter the land, steal his goods, and corrupt his religion. Luke chapter 19 tells us of this accounting with his servants. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he gave the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. He gives them money and he says, transact business until I come, so that they could gain by trading. Compare gets that part right, but he misses the meaning, the real meaning of that word occupy, and imagines that that means that the Israelites must occupy all of these former places that we dwelt in. Then came the first saying, Master, thy pound has given, has gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And another came, saying, Master, behold, here is thy pound, which I have laid up, kept laid up in a napkin. For I fear thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou that thou layest not down, and reapest what thou did not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest thou not my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. In other words, to do the least that he could have done with his master's money. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that has ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which has shall be given. And from him that has not, even he that has shall be taken away from him. Now note that the stern warning to these to those people today who say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, and that is all that matters. I refuse to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is not enough for a servant only to save his own hide and neglect his master's business. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 admits that even he could lose his reward of a crown. 
not his salvation, but his reward if he neglected his duties. And, and it's a constant challenge to explain this. We have often asserted that most Christians are confused between salvation, which is an absolute promise to all of Israel, and reward, which is by the judgment of God for our works. Here we are pleased that Compare did not share that confusion. While we have asserted in our presentation of Romans chapters 5 and 6 that this earthly life is meant for man to learn the consequences of sin, here Comparet continues explaining this in his own terms, and he says, We are being trained to administer the kingdom of Yahweh under the direct rule of Yahshua. The servant who did not improve on what he had been trusted with lost even what he had. It is your duty to know all these things I have been discussing, to make your pound gain others by teaching others the truth. Mark chapter 4 explains this, unto you that hear, as in listen and obey, shall more be given, for he that has... To him shall be given, and he that has not from him shall be taken even that which he has. So much for the accounting the servants had to make to their Lord. Now what of the citizens who hated him? Yahshua Christ himself gives us the answer to this in Luke 19.27, where he says, But those my enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring them hither and slay them before me. Now before you start thinking of thinking of all the awful names you can call me for making that suggestion. Remember that I just quoted the exact words of Yahshua Christ. Possibly you won't criticize him quite as severely as you would me. And perhaps he was afraid somebody would call him an exterminationist. Too many so-called identity Christians think that this command is limited to the Jews alone. Yet they neglect Obadiah verses 15 and 16, Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 11, and Psalm 118, and the many other passages of scripture which reveal that all but the children of Israel and the Adamic peoples among them are accounted as God's enemies. Copper continues and he says, Remember that when he returns, his first appearance on the earth will be when he stands on the Mount of Olives across the valley east of Jerusalem and there is a great earthquake. Then the Mount of Olives cracks wide open and the city of Tel Aviv falls into the chasm. Now do you understand why so many Jews are going to Palestine? Bring them hither and slay them before me. And while overall Compare has done well with this parable, here he takes the prophetic Mount of Olives of Jeremiah chapter 14 quite too literally, and he interprets it in the same manner as the Judaized denominational sects. But prophetic Jerusalem, as Compare has even said elsewhere, refers to the seats of government of the children of Israel wherever they happen to be, and that is not the Edomite people presently in Palestine. 
The Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives of Zechariah are symbolic, and the prophecy is similar to the Camp of the Saints prophecy of Revelation chapter 20. The Jews are certainly not the saints of Yahweh. However, other prophecies, such as Malachi chapter 1, do forebode the destruction of the Edomite enemies of Christ, those who returned to rebuild the desolate places, but that's a separate issue entirely. Compre concludes his sermon. So we see that in four parables, the vineyard and the husbandman, the unfaithful steward, the fig tree, and the servants in the pounds, Yahshua Christ identified the past and prophesied the future of the Jews forever, in other words, that they would bear no fruit forever. Yahshua also prophesied the glorious future of the real Israel, who are the Christian, Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Teutonic nations of the world today. Until his return, there can be no greater authority than Yahshua Christ. All that he says must be true. Nothing that he says can be twisted into the idea that Yahweh was mistaken in the Old Testament and had to start over again in the New Testament. Yahshua shows that the whole Bible tells one consistent story. This story is about Yahweh's fallen children, the race of Israel, who are redeemed by Yahweh as Yahshua Christ. It tells that Satan would fight us throughout this entire age using his own children to do it and we see Satan as those races of people collectively. Yahshua identifies these children of Satan as the Jews. Yahshua's, I'm sorry, Yahweh's plan will be carried to its triumphant conclusion. Yahweh was right the first time and all the time, meaning that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, was right, and that the New Testament is merely an extension of the Old Testament. The two are interdependent and contiguous. That's the point Bertrand Compare wanted to make in this sermon. There are some notes from Clifton Emmerheiser here, and Clifton says that there is not a lot that can be added to Compare's message here. I would give Compare a 99% rating on this lesson. The following is what I wrote in my premeditated murder of Yahweh in the flesh, along the same lines of thought. Clifton quotes his paper and says, It seems that almost everyone has completely overlooked the political environment which brought on the final resolution for the premeditated murder of Yahweh in the flesh, meaning the crucifixion of Christ. It's spelled out so clearly in scripture. We have no excuse for not comprehending that conspiratorial plot. There is so much utter rot written on this subject by so-called authorities that it's simply amazing how they come up with all their convoluted and contrived ideas. But if one is void of the knowledge of some of the factors involved, he is destined to be wrongly persuaded by those who have formed various flawed premises. You will begin to see what I mean as I now point out the political environment under which the children of the serpent finally decided to take our Redeemer's life. 5,500 years after Eden, 
in Judea. We read at John 11 the following, And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spoke he not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Yahshua should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. What Caiaphas was highly implying, in fact stating that it was imperative, is that it would be better for Yahshua, Yahweh in the flesh, to die rather than for the country of Judea to perish from being a nation. But Caiaphas went far beyond that, with the additional reasoning given given by John at verse 52 above. Therefore, we must question, who were these children of God that were scattered abroad? They could be no other than the twelve tribes of Israel mentioned at James 1.1. James, a servant of Yahweh and the Savior of Yahshua Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. In other words, Caiaphas was afraid that Herod controlled the nation of Judea would be overthrown by Yahshua and that he would additionally regather the lost tribes that had gone into the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. This whole plot against Yahshua was to thwart any reassembling of the true tribes of Israel. And of course, Clifton's conclusion is also correct, as Paul had also attested in Acts chapter 6, that the hope of Israel was for the twelve tribes, and that the Jews were opposed to that hope. And the honest reading of the New Testament proves that the Jews are not the children of Israel, that the Israelites are not Jews, but that the twelve tribes are indeed found in Europe. Identity Christians need to take what good Compare had and perfect where he was wrong. Identity Christians need to continually refine this message and strive to perfect it because it is the only biblical and historical truth for our white race. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.